Can you relate to any of the following? Do you work in a school or district where it seems like people just don't care about racial justice work? Or do you care deeply about racial justice work, but the racial political environment that you're working in is making your work more and more difficult? If you can relate to any of these scenarios, then you're in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Rosa Rivera McCutcheon. Dr. Rivera McCutcheon is an associate professor in the Graduate Leadership Program at City University of New York Lehman College. During our conversation, we discuss what limiting care is and how it can get in the way of doing racial justice work in schools. We also talked about what radical care is and how you can start practicing it today. Finally, we spend time talking about what you need to do to still practice anti-racist leadership, even if your district is completely against it, and we discuss so much more. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.RacallyJustSchools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. And now for today's episode, I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence Green and I am your host and I am super excited that you are here for today's episode. Now, I just got to tell you from the very beginning that this episode is going to be fire because we have the one and only Dr. Rosa Rivera McCutcheon in the building. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm super happy for you to be here and super excited to talk about your new book about radical care. Um, but before we get into that, we always like to acclimate our listeners to who um, our guests are. And so the first question, I just really want you to think about your life and your professional journey as if it were a movie trailer. And I'm curious, like, who would be some of the people, some of the experiences and the institutions that were very pivotal in you getting to where you are today? Sure. So I talk a little bit about this in, in the, the book, in the introduction, but I think the the key players in the book would be my mom, my dad, um, my sisters, um, my mom in particular, who really held it down as my dad had multiple sclerosis and um, and really was not able to sort of carry the family in the ways that he would have wanted. Um, But my mom, I'll just say, is a badass. You know, she's she was a homemaker, but she just became involved in the community and really set an example for my sisters and for myself around justice and equity um, and was really engaged in schools um, despite not having, you know, beyond a high school degree and really not having been um, super invested in schooling. Uh, she really navigated the, the systems for us um, and really set a powerful example for us. And then I think, you know, the, the other parts uh, sort of scenes in the, in the, the movie 
would would sort of involve my own experiences in schooling, um, especially in the ways that they those experiences really shaped my understanding of of at a later point of what radical care could potentially be and where it was missing in in my schooling. So my own experiences as a student in New York City public schools, um, my transition to college and the challenges of of attending a private, predominantly white institution um, and really feeling as though I had not benefited from the same quality education that some of my peers did um, in their schooling. And then I think my own experiences as an educator and really um, as a high school teacher in the Bronx and really recognizing in hindsight the ways that I perpetuated um, some of the same problematic schooling um, and approaches to care. And so all of that really has shaped in, in, a, in profound ways how I do my work, how I teach, how I think about um, what schools should look like. Uh, so that would be essentially what uh, the movie trailer and the scenes of it would, would be. I want to just jump into it. Um, your, your new book, Radical Care, Leading for Justice in Urban Schools. And before we start, I just want to say I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. I think it's written in a way that folks who are in schools that want to engage this work can really take a hold of it. And so I want to definitely recommend everybody who is listening to go get a copy of this book. It is powerful. And I really think it will transform your work. And um, one of the things you say early on in this book, you start to talk about this idea of limiting care and how it can actually be a barrier. It can pre pre present challenges to really doing deep racial equity work and racial justice work. Can you talk a little bit about what is limiting care and like how it shows up in schools? Yeah. So first, just thank you for for the praise about the book. Um, it really means a great deal um, coming from someone like you, who I greatly respect and admire in your own right. So, um, so I, I got to tell you, when we were thinking about, when I was thinking about limiting care um, and really trying to to actually come up with a phrase that sort of encapsulated what I was trying to say, and um, the the first iteration of limiting care, I'll say, if, if I can curse, is was shitty care, and we were like, well, this is shitty care, right? But but what we what I was what I was trying to get at in really thinking about what this idea of limiting care is, the, the problem with, with framing it as shitty care, right, or just thinking about it in this negative frame, is that it really um, sort of, it, what, it, what that does is it, 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 it hides the intentions, right, that are behind limiting care very often, right? So what I'm not saying, I'm not arguing that people who are practicing limiting care in schools, that leaders or educators that are practicing limiting care, are really intending to cause harm, right? I think that it's it's very often coming from a good place. And as I say in the book, at different points, that despite you know the practices that I engaged in as a, as an educator, um, that you know was attempting to 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 do really good things for my kids, I really did care a lot about my children, about my students. Um, in many ways, what I was doing was limiting them either in the moment or in the future. Right. And so that's where this phrase limiting care from. And again, fundamentally, um, it's done in the service of children. I think I think very often I really do take the stance that I think people enter the field of education because they do care about kids. Right. They want to they want to they wanna do something. So I don't think that it's malicious. I think there's a small percentage of folks that are like, I want my summers off or I want this break or whatever it is. But most folks who are who are educators who enter the field 
really do understand that it's it it is fundamentally about about making a change um, and and serving um, children, right? But but what it is is fundamentally it's this pity and excuse making, right? And it's done in the service of children, but because we are we're making excuses for the kids or we're pitying them, right? Um, what ends up happening is we ask them to do less, um, and we sort of rationalize that in our heads because we're 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 thinking, well, you know, life is so hard for them, right? This is this is they showed up and that was enough, right? Um, and what that does is it allows us to accept mediocrity of our students, but also mediocrity of ourselves, right? Um, because a big part of that as educators is really uh, interrogating our own practices and trying to understand, you know, what is actually motivating these practices, right? What is, are we actually pushing the students to do, to reach greater and greater heights? Um, that's really critical. And that's one of the elements that would be missing from, from limiting care. But I think most importantly, um, practicing limiting care really does inhibit, um, it, it, it ignores structural inequality, right? Like, so it's, it, it, it ignores the um, institutional historical racism, systemic racism um, and inequities, right? And so, when we ignore that, then what it what it's going to do um, is is going to just inhibit transformation, right? Because we're not even we're not even confronting that how it how it gets um, how it's manifested in, in the day to day sort of systems and structures and schools and how that sort of trickles in by osmosis, right? In the air that we breathe into our very practices. So, so the limiting part of this limiting care is really not just in the very moment, but thinking about the long-term impact of, of what it means to, um, to, to pity and make excuses and accept mediocrity of ourselves and of, of the students that we're intending to serve. So much there. You make, but one of the things you mentioned there was about, um, you know, often when folks engage in limiting care, they can ignore these larger structural realities. And early in the book, you wrote something that was compelling to me and it was actually striking. So you you make this argument that it's not enough to just do larger structural change, which I find a lot of the work just centering around individuals, right? And their autobiographical experiences and their identities. And that work is important. But if you only focus on that and you ignore these larger racialized systems that are at play, you've just helped people work through their identity. But the structure and system remains the same. But you push it a little further. You say it's not enough to just engage in a structural change without having like this ethic of radical care. So I'm interested. Could you talk first of all about just what is radical care and why is it so profoundly important to doing like racial justice work? that benefits black and brown youth in schools? What, what I think of as radical care is these five components, um, which I'll say in a moment, but th- these five components really are synergistic, right? Um, and very often, right, when we're talking about things, when we're writing about things, we really have to sort of tease them apart to, to, to further sort of um, explain and, and um, identify the different elements. But the danger in doing that sometimes is that people sort of think of, okay, I've done this thing, let me check that box. I've done this thing, let me check this box. Or I can't do that, let me go to this thing. And one of the things that's really critical that I I think about radical care is that it is really integrated. And all of these things are happening um, at at one time. And 
um, they all sort of support. They are synergistic with with the others, right? So they work together. Um, so the, these five components are adopting an anti-racist stance, cultivating authentic relationships, believing in students and teachers' capacity for excellence, leveraging power strategically, and then it finally is embracing the spirit of radical hope. And it fundamentally, sort of the undergirding component, as as you said, is is you know this anti-racist practice, right? The stance which is not just about the practice, it's about the mindset. Um, it's about sort of the reflective processes, all of these things, right? So that sort of undergirds and, and guides all of the components, but they all are interrelated, right? So you really can't cultivate authentic relationships with folks if you don't understand, as you were saying, the, the sort of systemic racism, right? If you don't understand the history of communities, if you don't understand the racialized experiences of the students that are in front of you, the communities that are in front of you, but also the the historical um, racialized experiences, right? The historical trauma, the historical triumphs, right? Um, like you can't do that. So the authentic relationship is um, is dependent upon adopting that anti-racist stance, right? And those relationships then will leverage, for instance, the, the your belief in students and in your own uh, capacity for for excellence, right? Um, those those relationships then uh, create a, a trusting environment between yourself and the student, right? You know, students work differently for and with educators who they believe love them, right? They work differently, and so those relationships are intended to leverage um, that belief. And, and therefore the expectations around that, right? So all of these things really work together. And that's essentially what, what radical care is. But undergirding all of this, again, is this, this really profound understanding of, of how race and racism is so pervasive um, in our uh, history, in the history of this country, right? And, and that it doesn't just disappear because we've said we're post-racial, right? It, it is, it is there, it's, it's baked in, it's cooked into all of the pieces, and we need to continuously have that at the forefront and sort of remind ourselves. You know, since the summer of 2020, it seems like anti-racism has, you know, come to the fore in like mainstream discourse and folks have been t- taking it up. And I think on one hand, I'm excited about that. And the other hand, there's a caution because Ideas like social justice, ideas around even equity, they can become commodified, they can become gentrified. And I'm just curious, what does an anti-racist stance mean to you? And then, like, what does that look like in practice? And particularly in practice, when we're thinking about this larger ethic of a radical care, what would it look like for leaders to begin to take up an anti-racist stance and perspective? Yeah, so I, so, um, I talk a, a bit about this in the book, but but really focusing first and foremost on sort of the self, right? So so it is sort of the work that you talked about a little earlier around sort of the um, the autobiography, right? Like really understanding um, your place, and that I think that it's different for white folks. I think it's different for for people of color, right? And I talk specifically sort of about what white folks need to do and what what folks of color need to do, and white folks really need to sort of understand. Um, deeply their positionality, um, their privilege, their access. They need to think, they need to understand sort of the history. They need to sort of grapple with the challenges of trying to work towards being an anti-racist, whether you call it ally, whether you call it co-conspirator, 
um, that, you know, the challenges of being told to, to take a seat, no, get up. Um, he goes, go be quiet. No, no, no. You need to speak up. Right. Yes. It's tricky to rain for white folks, but guess what? They just got to do that. Right. That's the work that they have to do. Right. Um, and they really have to engage in that and they have to sort of grapple with doing the work without, without relying on black and brown bodies and, and, um, thought to, to really, to really do that work for them. Right. So it's not about necessarily having someone that you're constantly checking and saying like, did I, did, was I racist just now? Right. So, so not about burdening folks of color to, to sort of speak to them and sort of coach them through that, but to really be proactive in that work. Um, but I think one of the most critical parts of, of, of this that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about is, is, the role of privilege and sort of positionality and and how your privilege and your positionality can often make you complicit in reproducing these inequities, right? In reproducing sort of the racial structures and reifying those structures, right? So that's a huge part of the work that white folks have to do. But the other piece of it then for, for folks of color is that like we internalize, we, we too breathe the same air, right? And so the reflection, uh, the reflective processes that we need to sort of engage in are also really critical, right? So I'm Puerto Rican. Um, and I think it's, you know, those of us that are, that are Latinx, uh, Puerto Rican in particular, but Latinx in general, you know, anti-Blackness is the real thing in the Latinx community. Anti-Black, just racist, because they are conditioned in that way, right? And we you know, we, as I said, we breathe this, we, we, we are, are, are very cells sort of take it in the racism and that self-hatred and that uh, internalized oppression is real. So our own work is around sort of examining how we sort of um, advance a narrative that continues to sort of uplift anti-Blackness um, and depending on where we are in, in positions of power that also continues to, um, to reproduce obviously the power structures are a little bit different, right? We don't have the same sort of access to power that, that white folks have, but we do have power and we have power in our own communities and we have power in our own families and in our, you're right, in our networks. And so really engaging and calling out and asking ourselves some really difficult questions. Um, that's, that's all part of that work. And that's, that's an ongoing thing. It's not, as I was saying, it's not a thing where you're like, okay, check that box, right? It really is about, examining all parts, and this is for everyone to do, right? It, white, black, and in between, really taking a look at what are, how are we, how do we have this, how is the school organized, right? And how is it organized in ways that, whether it's conscious or unconscious, is again, reproducing sort of the racial, um, uh, racialized experiences for black, Latinx, and other marginalized youth of color, um, how are we, how are, how are the systems that we've got in place actually continuing to do the thing that we're saying we're fighting against? Because that's where the, the, the difference between the talk and what are we actually doing? How are we dismantling? But also then how are we reconstructing um, schools in ways that are more responsive, um, more equitable, more joyful for, for kids of color? Gotcha. No, that- that's good. It makes me think of what you said earlier around like creating the conditions, right, for this work to really take root. And if a leader and school leaders and leadership teams are engaging in ty- that type of reflective practice, but also 
critical questioning of what is there, I think that creates conditions for teachers and for staff or families to join in that collective engagement. And the the reality is many of them may already be (laughs) asking those questions. So for a leader that occupies a particular type of institutional power to engage in that work, I think is, is super profound. My question to you, though, um, even with that critical questioning and calling out and everything you just said, given this current moment that we're in where leaders, I mean, I've talked to principals and superintendents who said they, they're not even using the word equity anymore because, because of the political racialized context of what they're in. There's these alleged uses of critical race theory in classes. And so people are all up in arms. And so I guess my question is, for folks who are in schools right now who are leading, what suggestions might you offer to them about how to maintain this anti-racist orientation in a very, very anti-anti-anti-racist context? If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I actually think that's a brilliant question. Um, so I was listening. Uh, Dr. Linda Tillman <clears throat> gave a talk uh at Loyola Marymount, um, uh, she gave a keynote uh, maybe a month or two ago. And one of the things she said, because this question came up, right, especially in this context, which, by the way, it's not the last time this will happen, right? So every time there is there is sort of, <clears throat> sort of an awakening, there is going to be retrenchment, right? People are going to push back. So there's this retrenchment, right, um, and sort of digging in. So the moment of, of I think, hope um, as the sort of racial reckoning, the so-called racial reckoning was, was starting, um, it's, there's a backlash, right? And which, which we, I think many of us anticipated. But one of the things she talked about was like, you got to figure out which hill to die on. And, you know, in the context of, of radical care, I really think of that as the fourth component, right? And this idea of leveraging power strategically and, you know, it can't be necessarily on Front Street. One of the one of the examples that I give in the in the book that sort of speaks to this and, and again, also speaks to the importance and sort of the interconnected nature of these components is um, when a principal called uh, the, that I talk about in the book, he called up um, an advocacy group. Uh, called Mothers on the Move, um, powerful parent, uh, mother, uh, group of mothers in the Bronx who, you know, the, the system was was fearful of because they were they were powerful. Like these were some badass women um, that made that that would they just knew how to 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 use their power. And he called them up and said, I need you to call the superintendent. And, you know, there was a particular situation that was happening and the, the the principal of the school could not directly confront it because to do so would have um, would have led to potentially his removal. Um, it was just not a strategically um, uh, uh, a strategic move to to try to ba- do battle with the superintendent directly. And so he called this this group of women um, who were this powerful group that he saw as allies in this work, right? Um, they were not adversaries, they were allies. And so he was able to call them up and just say, this is what the deal is. Don't tell them I called you, right? That's, that's 
that's the kind of leadership that we're sort of into right now. This is what we need at this moment, right? So if you're saying, if I can't say social justice, if I can't say equity, if I can't say race, right? Like, then that means that I have to be really strategic and very smart about how I do the work without appearing that I'm doing the work, um, it, at least outwardly, and to, to people who are really going to have the power to remove me. Because the key is, I am not advocating that folks, the folks that are doing this work, that they, they get to the point where they get fired, right? Um, we need them in those places more than ever, actually. Um, when they have to do sort of this subversive work and this idea of, so I, I think about this leveraging power strategically, that part of that is that this work has to be subversive more now more than ever. Um, but you can't, and this is where the interconnected nature comes in. You can't do that kind of subversive work if you haven't formed authentic relationships with folks, right? If they don't trust you, if you haven't taken the time and invested the energy in really authentically knowing communities. And I don't mean because you think you're going to need them later, but I mean, because you truly understand the value of building with these folks, then you can't call anybody up on the side and say, Hey, I need you to, you know, I need you to call, call this guy, or I need you to show up in this way. Right. So I I'm thinking a lot about these board of ed meetings that we're seeing and, you know, the folks that are showing up. Now, you know, superintendent or the principal, depending on the on the the context, you know, some places they can sort of push back on it. Other places they cannot because they will be gone, you know, before the end of the board meeting. So that's the kind of place where you're not necessarily going to you're not going to do anyone any good by standing up and sort of proclaiming yourself as an anti-racist in this anti-anti-anti space. Right. However, what you can do is sort of galvanize on the side, say, listen, there's going to be a bunch of yahoos who show up to this board of them meeting <laughs> and we need you to, to show up to this board of them meeting too, so that you can provide a counter narrative. Right. And, and don't tell them I told you to come. That's the work that has to happen. And so we have to do the anti-racist work without saying that it's anti-racist work. I, I truly believe that. I mean, I think in some places there's space to sort of push back and say those words, but in a lot of places today, it's not possible, right? Um, and so we don't just give it up. We just have to figure out a way to do it in in subversive ways. Um, and I think that that's where it's like leveraging your 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 power really strategically um, in order to make that shift. Other times, it is absolutely. I'm I'm out there. I'm gonna be I'm out, I'm gonna be out here championing, doing rallies, etc. But that really varies from context to context. Um, what what can fly in New York and in New York City can't necessarily fly in Texas, <laughs> guaranteed. But and even what can fly in New York City, which is you know twenty minutes south of me because I'm in Westchester, New York, isn't necessarily going to fly up up here in New Rochelle. Um, not now. So so it's really important to sort of keep that in mind. Um, and that's the battleground, right? We know that the Board of Education. Like that, those are the battlegrounds now. That's where where folks are taking over, and and we need to be strategic again about that. This is so so good. I I mean, you're underscoring. I think what is which is so important is the tensions, the nuances, the contradictions, and like the messiness of this work. You know what I mean? Because it. Context matters, right? There are tensions, but the idea of leveraging power, and I think oftentimes in the conversations about equity, 
even in some of like the racial equity and justice conversations, the notion of power is left out of the equation. And I always like to say diversity is about representation, but equity and justice is about power, right? And so to strategically leverage these, the power relationships that one has is vital. What would you say to leaders who are like, all right, I realize in this context, I haven't developed any authentic partnerships, any authentic relationships, and I understand now the ways in which power are important here. What would you say to them about how they might go about starting to develop some of these relationships? Yeah, I mean, my mind first and foremost goes to your work around community equity audits, right? Like, I mean, that's about understanding communities, um, going out and engaging in conversations, right, with with the folks in the community around what their needs are, but also what their um, what the real sort of brilliance is in the community, and 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 in thinking about the needs, thinking about that again, not from a deficit perspective, but understanding how again structural inequality has created the conditions in communities, in many communities. Um, that lead to whatever the challenges are, whether it's crime or you know whatever it is, right? Housing insecurity, food insecurity, really understanding that this isn't about lazy people. It's not about right. It is about sort of the structures, and I think you know um, that work that that you do um, has heavily influenced you know the work that I do in preparing school leaders, right? So and and I have them engage in in something similar to that where they have to go out and do these sort of neighborhood walks. They have to do it with a stakeholder. Um, They have to choose that stakeholder who's deeply invested in the community and who, who does have an asset based lens. Because again, as a, as a reminder, I I learned, I think maybe the first time I did it, I was like, okay, I need to fix this assignment because, you know, some of my students pick stakeholders who maybe were people of color, but that internalized oppression was real. Right. And so it all it did was sort of reinforce some really problematic about ideas about about the communities that my my students were working in. So I revised that assignment and made that very very explicit. So I I say that explicitly to the students, right? But um, and I think that this is something that can be done. It doesn't have to happen just in your leadership preparation program, right? This is a beginning of the year activity. This is an ongoing activity. This is you you hire new staff. This is what you do. And we often, you know, we get to, um, we get to work, we get out of our car, we come out of the train or whatever. And we have, you know, we, we've got like blinders on, we go straight, we walk to the same, in, in our case, we'll go to the bodega, we'll get our cup of coffee or whatever, and go right to the building. And we don't see anything else. Um, and I cannot tell you how often that every year that this, that I assign this, there are so many students that are like, I had no idea that there was, you know. Uh, a, a housing shelter, right, across the street from the school, right? And and many of our kids live there. I had no idea that that was there. I had no idea that, you know, I come this way, but around the corner is a community garden or around the corner is this um, wonderful CBO that, you know, is partnered. I've had students in my classes that are like, I had no idea that we had this service in my building, right? They offer CPR and all of these other things. And I went somewhere else and paid for it, but it's in my building and I had no idea it was here, right? So that is sort of the, I think, 
it it starts in what seems like the mundane and the and the like overly simplistic, right? But it is there's beauty in that, right? And there's possibility in that. You know, we think of these sort of grand, right? It doesn't have to be grand. It literally is go out and instead of walking right to the train, go left and, and open your eyes and you know look up from your phone um, and see the places and see the community. You know, things like home visits, right? That doesn't happen enough like at all. Um, and I think that that's another piece of it, right? So even in places where there is, like, I'm not going to say there isn't crime, right? And and there isn't the reason for the crime, you know, again, we can talk about sort of the the structural inequities that that lead to these things. Um, but I'm certainly not, don't want to put anyone in harm's way because, you know, it's real, especially if you're a stranger. But if you're, if you become part of a community, then you are safer, right? Because the community will hold you. The hu- The community has got your back. Um, and so we need to really think about how schools are part of the communities um, and the ways that, that we can develop these relationships more deeply um, or like at all, <laughs> you know, deeply implies that there are relationships. And I think that there are very often just not. Um, and so I think that goes, that goes a lot. It can go a long way. And, and again, it doesn't have to, the length, depending on the context, it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of framed as like, this is part of the anti-racist work and building relations, right? It doesn't have to be that. That's where we can be subversive, right? Um, I, I, and I think that that's critical. No, this is this is awesome. And thank you for, for the kind words about my work. Um, but yeah, that is a lot in there. So folks who are listening, definitely pause. And I would encourage you to go back because there's just a lot of good stuff in there. One of the things you mentioned, though, you said essentially like there's brilliance in the community. And if if we approach the way we think about communities as like there is brilliance here. Right. I think that orientation in and of itself. Yes, we know communities are rife with all types of tensions and everything that's going on. But there is brilliance here. And so the way in which I now relate. Knowing that there's brilliance here, I, I just think is a different orientation to engaging with communities, which is super important. And it's actually a great segue into another question that I have for you, because you write about how um, teachers and students um, success and their capacity to do great work is a part of radical care. And you open up one of the chapters with a, a vignette about a principal, I think, Miss Norwood. And realizing that, um, you know, these teachers got a lot of deficit ideologies, thinkings and practices, particularly around black and brown youth. And I'm I'm curious because I've heard over the years so many times where folks, they feel like folks just bring in like these deficit perspectives in working with black and brown youth. But my question is, you know, what would you say to a school leader or even an educator? that finds themselves working in a school where deficit perspectives and ideas about what people can't do and how they're deficient and what they lack just are abundant, how might they navigate that type of a space? So I, I think of this as, um, I, I think it's, it's through questioning, right? So again, depending on sort of, and this is about relationship develop, building relationships too, right? So that that component around believing in, in students and teachers' capacity for excellence, right, is 
is again also predicated on these relationships, right? So you 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 can't push teachers who are already just doing the most, especially in these days, right? To do more, to be reflect like you, it's hard to ask people to sort of take risks if you haven't built the relationships with them, so that they you know you have to build that trust with them too. And so, and and I do believe that that I I do fundamentally believe that there's goodwill right? Um, on the part of many teachers and that they, they simply need for someone to engage them in a process of reflection and questioning their practices. So I think the, the questioning is really critical. So you don't have to say like, that's racist. Why, you know, why'd you do that? Why are you lowering your standards for this black kid? And what about, you know, would you accept this for your white child? Right. I, I don't think that necessarily has to happen. And I don't necessarily think that's always going to be productive. Now, make no mistake, I do think that there are some folks out there that are just racist and just do not belong to in, in front of our kids, right? They, they don't belong in front of any kids. Um, but I think, it, again, that, that what we have to do is sort of build the opportunities and sort of meet people where they're, they are and ask them really good questions. Um, and so why, you know, so why would you, why would you, um, in, the, in the case of Ms. Norwood, so following the line of thought rather than saying, okay, well, these, these, these kids, we wouldn't ask them to revise because, you know, um, you know, what's in, what's implied is that they have these deficit perspectives about these kids and they, and they, they, you know, they were practicing this limiting care, but rather than just sort of end the meeting at that asking, oh, so um, why wouldn't you ask them to revise? Um, You know, do you think that this would be, would, would this get them into college? Would this, you know, would, would they be successful if they were to be at, you know, this institution with this particular piece of work? Um, when, you know, what, what is the, what, what is the problem with asking them to do more, right? So asking questions, I think is a really powerful way, um, to, to help people sort of reflect on, um, on how they can, how they can sort of shift their practice. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of question sort of, causes people to 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 pause and it sort of disrupts the moment and makes them interrogate their thinking and why they actually said that. Uh, and I think that that can be really powerful. Um, I, and I think that's one of the things that leaders can do, simply asking the questions, the why questions, why, you know, and then why, and then why again. Um, and and that can really lead to, I think, some profound um profound outcomes and sort of epiphanies for the educators that are doing this work. My last question before we kind of go through our rapid questions is you talk about this, this final component of radical hope. And, you know, over the last few months, year and a half, I've talked to a lot of educators who have left the field principals who have just completely, they're done. Um, they, feel a sense of hopelessness. Could you talk a little bit about what is radical hope and then like how might folks working in schools tap into radical hope, particularly in times that may feel and seem so hopeless? Oh, that's a t- so I, I, I think I said it in the chapter like that, that <laughs> there would be times when I was working on the book where I was like, this is going to be the shortest chapter. This is going to be like one line. Because because radical hope is hard to come by, so but I think that is so um, essential because this work is so hard. So the 
the best, I think the best way to cultivate that and to sort of grow it and to, to sort of keep that fire burning is to surround yourself with, with other people that are like-minded, right? With other people who can motivate you and you can take turns, right? I'm not saying that you need to be, you always need to be sort of the Debbie Downer that's depressed about how things are, things are going to be in, in the world or continue to be in the world. But I think that you need to surround yourself with people that are equally committed. So find your people um, and really nourish and encourage one another. And when one is down, the other is then there to sort of provide perspective to um, to to encourage you for the next time. And then and then then it will be your turn. The other part, I think, is in my sort of deepest, deepest, (laughs) most, you know, Um, disillusioned moments, the sort of phrase that I think of often, and I've tried uh, to, to, to remember where I found this, but this idea of, of the struggle for justice is the work of generations and, and getting some perspective about what this moment is, that it is simply a moment in a collection of moments on a continuum that is really powerful to help to sort of help um, to help sort of to to think about it, what is it that I can accomplish at this time, and how does my work build on the folks whose st- shoulders I'm standing on, and how will it provide a platform or a strong set of shoulders for others who come after me to stand on? Right when you think about it in that moment. Um, and in that way, I think it, it, I know for me anyway, it provides me with strength, right? It provides me with, with the ability to sort of keep going, right? When I get disillusioned, when I get frustrated, when I feel like I've been to this meeting 20 times and we're still talking about this same thing, right? In the last year, I, it's like deja vu. We're still here. Um, that really does encourage me. Figuring out how to hold on to that that spirit of radical hope is so essential because you need to galvanize the folks in your school to continue to do this work. And I do think that when you have built, you know, really valuable relationships, when you have when you have invested in the students and in the educators, and I don't mean monetarily, but just in terms of your time and in terms of feedback and the critical questioning and all of those things, when you've done that work, then there are more people in your midst that can embrace that spirit of radical hope. You're not doing the work alone. Um, I think that's really essential. Well, 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 thank you so much. And one of the ways that we like to end the Racially Just Schools podcast is by asking our guests a series of just rapid questions. And so whatever comes to your mind first, um, we would love to hear it. So you you ready to, ready for the questions? Yes. <laughs> All right. No trepidation, but yes. <laughs> so the first question is, if there um, was to be a movie made about your life, who would you want to star as you and why? I will go with uh, Rosario Dawson, um, who she's just a badass actress. Uh, she's she's half Puerto Rican. And what I think is really compelling about her is that she's an activist. Right. So any person that I would want to play me would sort of have both parts of that. Right. Their craft, but also their commitment. Uh, the next question is, if you could instantly become an expert in anything, what would it be and why? 
Oh, it would have to be something that I don't like doing so that I could be expert in it. Um, so that's either gardening or cooking. So, so I think cooking though, I would pick cooking because then I could at least be, um, I could sustain, you know, myself and my family in ways that, you know, like we need to eat. So, um, I am not a fan of cooking and it stresses me out in similar ways that gardening does. Cause you got to like get it right. So, but I, I'm going to go with cooking because at least we can eat if I'm, if I'm a, an expert at that. Final question is if you had to take a nine hour plane ride and you could sit next to one person and have a conversation with them, who would that person be and why? I would have to say, I would, I would, I would, this is a make-believe person actually. So I would have a conversation. I'd sit next to, um, I have three kids who are range in age from 12 to 17. So I would, I would sit next to an amalgam of them in the future because I would just want to know I want to get some insights into into their lives, how they experienced their lives, how they how they experienced you know parenting, how they experienced educate just growing up. I love that. I haven't heard that answer before. I love it. Love it. Um, I guess as we close, where can folks learn more about your work? You know, pick up copies of your book if they wanted to stay in contact. Sure. So they can learn more about my work um, on my website, which is rrmphd.com. So it's my initials, Rosa Rivera McCutcheon. So rrmphd.com. And then as far as copies of the book, um, I always, I'm a fan of independent um, bookstores. There is one bookstore in the Bronx that isn't, you know, connected to a college. Um, it's an independent black owned, it's a Afro Latina, uh, who owns this. It's called the lit bar. Uh, um, so, uh, the lit L I T bar B A R.com. Um, so she's an independent, uh, bookseller. Um, and I would always encourage people to go there first, uh, besides, you know, the sort of typical ways that folks find books. Gotcha. Well, we'll be sure to link both of those in the show notes so folks can get access to them. I just want to say thank you. I really enjoy spending time learning more about your work and just having a great conversation with you, chopping it up. So thank you very much for being a guest on the Racially Just Foods podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your questions and for your brilliance and your work. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.